0: You are listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 26, for October 5th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains adult language, graphic violence, and some sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Com. Welcome back, Metamorphs. Chris Lester here to bring you another exciting installment of the Metamorph City podcast. I'm recording this intro on a Friday night in mid-September. I'm okay. now four weeks into my first year as a teacher, and while it's been presenting me with a lot of challenges, I've also gotten to know a lot of great young men and women. I know I have a lot of growing yet to do as a teacher, but I've got a fantastic team of people supporting me as I do so. Speaking of which, I want to give a big thank you to everyone who helped out in the fundraiser that we ran this month for our high school biology class. That was at arisebiology.chipin.com. Thanks to you, Loyal Metamorphs, we raised $843 to supply these students with the lab equipment and preserved specimens that they need to get a quality education. Those who contributed will be receiving letters from Arise High School with receipts for their tax deductible contributions, but I also wanted to give you my personal thank you. I know that many of you gave because it was a way for you to show your support for me and Metamore City, and I'm honored that this show matters that much to you guys. Thank you, and God bless you all for your generosity. Now then, let's get on with the story. It's chapter 17 of Making the Cut and here to introduce it is my fellow Bay Area podcast novelist, J. Daniel Sawyer. Take it away, Dan.
1: Hello, this is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of Sculpting God and of the Antithesis series, a science fiction spy thriller currently podcasting from www.jdsawyer.net. You're listening to episode 26, and this is The Story So Far. Two weeks into their whirlwind romance, Danny Sarabi and Jared Tamlin have withdrawn to the peace and solitude of Overlook Park, an ecosystem housed inside the massive observation dome at the top of the Citadel at Metamore. Neither of them knows that Rebecca and Sasha have cast a ritual spell to reawaken Danny's male alter ego, Daniel. Both Rebecca and the wizard Artax suspect that Jared has a power that the world has never seen before, the power to change a person's soul, to reshape their deepest desires to serve his own needs. Jared seems to be using the power unconsciously on Danny, and Rebecca and Artax hope that the spell will give Daniel a chance to reassert himself and escape from Jared's seductive influence. Meanwhile, Brian, Fiona, and Sasha are in the process of breaking into the vault of Viscount Security Solutions, a front company for the Vampire Crime Syndicate. In a quiet moment, Fiona confessed to Brian about her earlier conversation with the elder Miriam Bakhtavar. Miriam told Fiona that there is a deep pain inside of her that is coloring her judgment, making her terrified of being helpless or surrendering control. Fiona admitted to Brian that there are gaps in her memory, large portions of her childhood that just seem to be missing. In a rare show of vulnerability, she admitted that she was afraid to explore those depths within herself, afraid of what she might find there. Brian promised that he and the rest of their breeding cell would support her. After Callie bypassed the magical defenses on the vault, Fiona used her safe-cracking talents to open the physical combination lock. No sooner did she open the vault than a dark figure rushed at her from inside it, tackling her to the floor.
0: Chapter 17 the bottle of wine was mostly gone now, and Jared and Danny lay back in the blanket together in their private corner of Overlook Park. With the exception of the observation dome, the ceiling had been glamored to resemble a blue sky spotted with clouds, and they watched and pointed out shapes to each other as the clouds blew past.
2: So, what name did you decide on? Oof. For your ID records. Now that you're a woman, what did you pick for your full, official name?
3: Ah, yes.
0: Danny turned to rest her head on Jared's chest while she ran her fingers in lazy circles over his stomach.
3: Well, I went with Danielle, of course, just to prevent any possible confusion. My middle name used to be Roger, which is both awful and has no female equivalent, so I replaced that completely.
0: The what? She looked up at him.
3: Phoenix. Reborn from the ashes. That's me.
0: He smiled. Danielle Phoenix Shirabi. I like it. She let out a contented little sound and tucked herself in closer to him. This was such a good idea. I'm glad you think so, because I have a few more surprises for you, if you're ready. Her curiosity peaked. She sat up and watched as he reached inside the tote bag again. He pulled out a small box, about a decimeter on each side, and tied shut with white ribbons. He smiled almost shyly as he handed it to her.
2: For you. A little celebration of your official transition into womanhood. There's actually three layers inside.
0: With a flush of excitement, Danny untied the bow and opened the box. The first layer held a small silver locket. It was heart-shaped and had Danny engraved on one side and Jared on the other. Inside were two tiny photos of them both.
3: Oh, Jared, it's beautiful.
0: She slipped it around her neck immediately, then kissed him. Thank you. He grinned. Two more layers. She pulled out the little tray that had held the locket, revealing two small pastilles that looked like chewable vitamins. She looked at the label on the wrapper and blinked in surprise.
3: Shimmer tabs? Jared, I don't want you to do anything you're not comfortable with.
0: It's all right, he said, taking her hands in his. I did some checking on it, and it really is legal. And the
2: side effects are minimal. The only reason it's listed as a Class B is because it makes it easier to read people's minds. He touched her cheek fondly. I know you miss being able to be in a real gestalt when we make love. I do too. This way, we'll be able to,
0: at least once. I'll let you decide when the time is right. She looked into his eyes and saw the honesty there. He really did want to do this for her. Deeply touched, she took out the pastilles and handed one to Jared.
3: No time like the present.
0: He blushed and looked around. Here? Now? She smiled wickedly.
3: Who's gonna see us?
0: She asked, before slipping the tab under her tongue. It tasted sweet as it dissolved. She supposed that they probably used some kind of powdered sugar in the binding agent.
3: Come on, don't tell me you haven't been thinking about it since we got here.
0: His blush deepened, but he gave in and took his own tab. While she waited for it to dissolve, she planted light kisses along his cheek and the side of his neck. Her hands found the buttons of his shirt and began undoing them.
2: Hmm. Danny? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: One more layer in the box.
3: Oh, right. Yes.
0: (laughs) She giggled and wondered exactly how much alcohol had been in that wine.
3: Okay, here we go. Layer number three.
0: At the bottom of the box was a smaller box, a velvet-lined clamshell case.
3: Oh, Jared.
0: She whispered, pulling it out of the box and cradling it in her hands.
3: Holy crap, Jared. Is this what I think it is?
0: She looked up and saw that he had changed positions. He was now on one knee in front of her. Danny, I never thought
2: I could be happy again the way you've made me happy the last few weeks. I know some people would say it's too fast, but the way I see it, why would I want to wait? You've gotten into my heart in a way that I never would have dreamed possible, and I already can't imagine my life without you.
0: Then he opened the box, revealing an old-fashioned but frankly beautiful diamond ring. Danielle Phoenix Shirabi, will you marry me? Danny was crying, and she wasn't sure when it had started. She fingered the ring, reverently, and as her fingers made contact with Jared's, she picked up a mental image from him. Catherine, Jared's first wife, pressing the ring into her hands and smiling at her.
3: This... This was Catherine's ring, wasn't it?
0: Jared nodded, and she felt a wave of uncertainty run through him. Yes, it is. And if that's a problem, I can... What? No! Danny took him in her arms and kissed him hard. Then she wiped away her tears and sniffled again.
3: It's perfect.
0: It's like... She picked up the ring and held it up in front of him.
3: It's like this is a part of you, right? Like a piece of your heart. And you gave it to Catherine, and when she died, it was like... like that piece of you was locked inside here, waiting.
0: She tried the ring on. It was a little loose, but it fit well enough for now.
3: And now she's giving it to me.
0: Jared gently touched her chin and turned her face toward his. Then that's a yes? Yes. <laughs> She laughed and tackled him, knocking him back onto the blanket.
3: (laughs) Yes, silly, that's a yes.
0: She felt like her heart would burst from the joy inside her.
3: Yes, 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 and forever, yes.
1: (laughs) Fiona!
0: Brian rushed forward to help, sudden fear running through him like ice water. Fiona's psychometabolic powers could enhance her strength, her speed, or her senses, but she had a limited amount of psychic energy to distribute between them. She'd had all of her power pumped into her senses of hearing and touch in order to crack the safe, which meant that, at the moment, she was no stronger than a mundane. Fortunately, where strength failed, training took over. As the dark figure struck her, Fiona went to her knees and reached up to grab her attacker's clothes. She turned her fall into a combat throw, redirecting the attacker's momentum and sending it flying over her shoulder. The figure tumbled three meters across the floor and came up to its feet almost instantly, but by that time, Fiona was ready for it. They faced each other across the room, and for half a second, Brian got a good look at the enemy. The man wasn't exceptionally tall, nor was he muscle-bound, but he was wiry and fast, and moved with a predator's grace. He had been human once, a dark-haired Kitchlander in his mid-twenties, but his face was distorted by bloodlust into a feral look that no human could imitate. He grinned at Fiona, exposing long fangs, and his eyes glinted like a cat's in the dim light. Vampire. In that half-second before the creature could move again, Brian reached out with his electrokinesis and found a power conduit in the wall behind it. With as much strength as he could muster, he pulled on the current and summoned it to his outstretched hand. Lightning erupted from the wall and tore through the vamp's body, flash-frying his hair into a puff of foul-smelling smoke. Brian caught the lightning bolt in his left hand and channeled it back toward the vamp with his right, shocking him again as the current re-entered the wall behind him. The bolt didn't do as much as Brian had hoped it would. Vamps were normally vulnerable to fire, and he'd hoped to set this one's clothes alight, but the nondescript black uniform wasn't even smoldering. Must be flame retardant fabric. The vamp must have fed recently as well. His scalp looked like it had suffered a bad sunburn, but he showed no signs of being ready to burst into flames. Mostly, he just looked really pissed. The vamp closed the distance with Brian in an instant, striking out at his throat with claw-like hands. Brian dodged, but couldn't get out of the way completely, and he felt three lines of fire flash down his left arm. He gasped at the pain and stumbled backward, but he saw that his distraction had done its work. The vampire had taken its eyes off of Fiona to deal with Brian. She struck with a vicious kick that connected squarely with the side of his knee, snapping the tendons and sending the monster to the floor. With an inhuman snarl, the vampire lunged for Fiona, but she danced quickly out of reach, wary of getting into a grapple with him. The vamp clambered away on his hands and one foot, spider-like, then braced himself against the wall and shook out his ruined leg. It snapped back into place, the tendons healing almost instantly. Fiona started to move toward him again to attack, but there was a blur of motion, and suddenly he was pointing a pistol squarely at her chest. She came up short hands held up in front of her. Her face was a mask, as usual, but Brian was pretty sure he knew what she was thinking. Even she couldn't dodge bullets, not when they were being fired by a creature as fast as this one. Callie whistled softly.
3: Damn, they put you inside the vault? What kind of skag job is that?
0: The vamp pointed at the Viscount logo in his shirt pocket. Night Watchman he said, flashing her that same predatory grin. He took a step toward her, sniffed, then took another step and sniffed again. His head cocked to one side like a wolf's, and his grin broadened even further.
1: Hey, I know you. You're that runner girl, ain't ya? What's the name? Linda. Callie Linda.
0: Callie nodded once, her eyes wide.
1: Well, ain't you the lucky one.
0: He gestured to her.
1: Lie down on the floor, with your hands behind your head, and I'll let you live, runner. You've done good work for us in the past. No reason you have to die here.
0: Brian looked over at Callie. The runner's hands trembled, and she bit her lip as she looked back and forth between the guard and Fiona. Finally, she looked over at Brian, her expression apologetic.
3: Sounds like a deal to me.
0: She stepped over to the opposite side of the room, as far from Brian as possible, and laid down on the floor as the vamp instructed. Smart girl. Keeping his gun trained on Fiona, he edged over to Callie and put a pair of handcuffs on her. As he locked the second cuff into place, though, he glanced down at her and frowned. Hold it. His clawed hand shot out and gripped Callie's neck, pinning her to the ground. You've got something in your hand, Ryan. "'Give it here. Now!'
3: "'All right, all right, damn
0: it!' Callie yelped, sounding almost hysterical as the vampire's grip tightened around her.
2: "'Here, take it! Take it!'
0: She opened her hand and released the object she had palmed, letting it roll to the floor in front of her. It was a soft yellow mass, roughly the same shape and consistency as a small hard-boiled egg. It had a single rune etched on its surface, which was glowing softly." The guard released Callie's neck and snatched up the object, peering at it closely.
1: What's this?
0: Callie hesitated.
1: Tell me what it is, or I'll turn you myself. Don't think I'm not authorized to do it.
0: The runner turned over on her side and looked up at him. Even if he hadn't been a telepath, Brian would have been able to see her thoughts written on her face.
3: No fucking way am I letting this guy turn me into his blood slave.
0: I'm not going to ask you again, runner. Callie winced and bowed her head. Fuck.
3: It's a reagent pod.
0: The vamp smiled knowingly.
1: Ah, planning a little magic, eh, niblet?
0: He held up the pod in front of him and gave it a little shake as he peered at the glowing rune on its side.
1: And what sort of gents do you have in here? Anything valuable?
0: Callie glanced up at him, then lowered her head again.
3: Not really.
2: Edra!
0: The reagent pod burst open, releasing a cloud of fine yellow dust, and the sharp smell of garlic filled the air. The vampire doubled over, gagging and choking, as his skin broke out in a mass of angry red welts. His grip on the pistol slackened, and Brian called up an electromagnetic field that tore it out of his hand. He passed the gun quickly to Fiona, and with psi enhanced senses she took aim and fired twice. The bullets put out both of the vampire's eyes and drilled two holes in the back of his skull, spraying blood and gray matter across the opposite wall. He fell to his knees, blinded and stunned, and Fiona moved in to grapple him. She dislocated the vampire's (laughs) hips with two brutal moves, then locked his arms behind him. Steak! Brian pulled one from his belt and tossed it to her. With psi enhanced strength, Fiona drove the sharpened length of wood between the vampire's ribs and into his heart. Immediately, the vampire went limp and fell to the floor, immobilized and as senseless as any other corpse. Callie got up and dusted herself off, the handcuffs off of her wrists as quickly as they had gone on.
3: "'We'd better hurry. Odds already set off some kind of alarm before he attacked us. You've got maybe ten minutes to get out of here, tops.'
0: Brian nodded. Pulling out an electric torch, he headed for the vault, Fiona and Callie close behind him. Fortunately, like all things associated with the Vampire Syndicate, the vault proved to be extremely well organized. File cabinets lined both sides of the vault, and a long, narrow table in the middle of the room provided a space where files could be opened and examined. The far end of the room housed a computer terminal connected to a set of file servers. Brian examined the computers and quickly found that the network didn't extend outside the room, but that was easily remedied. He gestured at the file cabinets. See if you can find any hard copies that look relevant. I'm going to run a cable from an outside line. Fiona nodded once, then pulled open the nearest cabinet and began scanning through the tabs. Brian quickly located the spare network cables in a nearby storage closet and plugged one of them into the closest data jack he could find, in the first row of cubicles outside the antechamber. When he came back to the vault, he saw that Fiona had located the index for the file cabinets and was speed-reading through it, occasionally stopping to pull a file and set it on the table beside her. On the opposite side of the room, Callie was opening cabinets and pulling out files at random, trusting to her uncanny luck. Both of them had high-resolution digital cameras, ready to photograph anything that looked relevant. Brian plugged the network cable into the terminal and used his phony administrator ID to log in. The Spectre stirred in interest and came over to the newly connected servers, looking around for anything suspicious. But it had already tagged Brian as a friendly user and dismissed him from its mind. That left only the encryption on the files themselves, which they could worry about cracking later once they got out of here. Brian connected to a WorldNet server controlled by the Hive and began a rapid-fire transmission of all the data files on the vault's computers, beginning with the night of May 26th and working forward. As the files began uploading, he went over to the table and began helping Fiona and Callie photograph the hard files. He couldn't make much sense of what he was looking at, and he didn't bother to try... They worked quickly and silently, pulling out files, photographing them, replacing them in the drawers as soon as they had been imaged. Brian kept an eye on his watch and an ear tuned to the office outside. Vampires were incredibly quiet, as the guards' ambush of Fiona had demonstrated, but there was a good chance that they would at least hear the doors opening if the vamps were in a hurry. Brian called time at six minutes. That's it. Pack it in. Going back to the terminal, he cut the connection to the collective server, then put a finger in the computer's data port and scrambled the machine's history files with a thought. As he had promised Callie, he wouldn't destroy any of Viscount's data, but this would at least keep them from finding out what he had taken or where it had been sent. He pulled out the network cable and quickly followed Fiona and Callie out of the vault. As soon as they were outside, Callie used a non-detection scroll to erase any forensic evidence of their presence. Silently, they fell into step behind Brian and headed for their exit point. They were halfway there when Fiona grabbed Brian and dragged him behind a line of cubicles, a split second before a burst of gunfire tore through the hallway. Callie hit the floor next to them, stifling a curse. Fiona answered the shots with three of her own, and Brian heard a clatter of office furniture as some of their assailants took cover. He chanced a quick look over the top of the cubicle and quickly ducked back down again. From the far side of the office, moving through a maze of cubicles, a syndicate fire team was closing in on them.
2: Are they out of there yet? Not as yet.
0: Sasha bit her lip.
2: This is taking longer than we thought it would. Somewhat, yes.
0: Miriam Bakhtavar agreed.
2: But not overly so. Surely I don't need to remind you that no mission ever goes precisely to plan.
0: The elder sounded far more at ease about that than Sasha felt. The younger teep gripped the phone more tightly and paced back and forth between the kitchen and the living room. With Brian and Fiona out of contact, the nest was feeling more like a cage.
2: I know. I'm just not used to being stuck at home for them. C&C is supposed to be my job. And instead, I'm stuck here waiting for some sign that our spell kicked in. Also, I can go help Becca rescue her boyfriend. Damn it, the timing on this couldn't have been worse. I understand how you feel, child, but there is little you could do even if you were here. The extraction team is already in position. As soon as we regain contact with Brian, we'll move to pull them out.
0: Another voice said something that Sasha couldn't quite make out over the phone.
2: We've just received word that Brian has linked up to our server. The files are coming across as we speak.
0: Sasha nodded, glad of the news, but the knot in her stomach didn't unclench itself yet. She wouldn't be able to relax until she knew that Brian and Fee were safe. Sasha? Sasha turned around and saw Rebecca waiting for her. She'd changed into street clothes and pulled back her hair into a ponytail.
3: We've got to go now.
0: It's starting. Jared Tamlin and Danny Shirabi made love in their secluded corner of Overlook Park, their minds and bodies joined as one. The Shimmer had temporarily amplified their telepathic sensitivity, and for the first time the two lovers had entered into a true gestalt. Thoughts, emotions, and memories intertwined freely, and together they rejoiced at the love, acceptance, and sense of belonging that each of them had found in the other's arms. Neither of them realized that there was a third person who had been excluded from their bond. Somewhere deep inside the mind of Danny Shirabi, a tiny spark of ego that still thought of itself as Daniel was becoming worried. Daniel hadn't felt worried in quite some time. In truth, he wasn't quite sure whether he had felt anything in quite some time. He felt like he had just been awakened from a dream and he still wasn't sure what the dream had been about, or how long he had been asleep. Something outside of himself had grabbed hold of him and pulled him out of the dream, shaking him back into awareness. It wasn't as jarring as, say, having a bucket of cold water poured on him, but the force tugging on him was relentless and insistent. Part of him thought that it might be easier to slip back into the dream and forget the outside world completely, But the force held him fast, and refused to let him give up so easily. As consciousness returned, Daniel found that he was aware of his body again, though he was not in control of it. From the way his body was moving, and the sensations he felt, he knew that his female side was in control, and that she was making love to Jared. He had never thought of Danny as being a separate person from himself, but now it was obvious that that was exactly what she was. Daniel vaguely recalled someone telling him about that before, but he couldn't quite seem to access the memory. That wasn't the only memory he was missing, either. He reached out for his past, for the experiences that had made him himself. The breeding cell where he grew up, his parents and siblings, his life in the creche, even the trials and loneliness of the last year. The museum of his mind had been ransacked, the paintings and sculptures replaced with crude drawings. He didn't need to ask where the memories had gone. Danny had taken them for her own. Desperate for something to stabilize his sense of self, Daniel reached out for the one facet of his past that Danny left almost completely untouched his relationship with Rebecca. He clung tightly to those memories, from their first meeting to their last kiss. These are mine, he thought fiercely as if daring Danny to try to take the memories away from him. Danny didn't seem interested in contesting the point. She had Jared, which seemed to be all that she wanted or needed. More importantly, she had their body. That thought sent tremors of fear running through Daniel. Danny, or the Danny-Jared group mind that now controlled both of their bodies, had buried Daniel inside his own mind and buried their love for Rebecca along with him he didn't know how it was even possible, but Danny seemed to be cutting herself off from anything that would get in the way of her love for Jared, even if it meant trapping Daniel inside her forever. Like hell, Daniel thought. He turned and shouted into their shared mind, with as much effort as he could manage. It's my body too, Danny. You can't just turn me off because I'm inconvenient. Damn it, I'll fight you if I have to. For a moment, Danny Jared almost seemed to stop and listen to Daniel. Then another orgasm crashed through Danny's body, and she did not think of anything for some time. Fiona sent two more shots across the office of Viscount Security. Brian heard one of the Syndicate agents gurgle and stumble backwards, but Fiona shook her head as she darted back under cover.
3: Missed the eyes. One hit to the throat, but he's still up.
0: Brian grimaced. He'd been hoping that the Vamps had sent their human ghouls to deal with the break-in, but obviously that wasn't the case. He glanced over at the runner crouching beside him. <sighs> I got any more of those garlic bombs? A couple. Callie said, pulling out the soft yellow reagent pods.
3: You'll have to hit him dead on to really knock him out of commission, though.
0: I give
1: one to Fee." Between your luck and her skill, we ought to hit something. Here, both of you hold on
0: to me. Wait for my signal, and be ready to run. The runner's eyes questioned him, but she didn't protest. She linked hands with him and Fiona, and Brian put his finger to a nearby electrical socket. Taking command of the current, he sent his thoughts down into the power lines that crisscrossed the room. In moments, he found the points of resistance, the fine wires and delicate circuitry that lay in every computer, every card reader, every single piece of advanced equipment in the office. Once he had found these vulnerable spots, he reached out and channeled the current into the weak points surrounding the vampires, concentrating the power in the places that were least able to handle it. The response was nearly instantaneous. Computer consoles sparked and popped all over the office as the overheated circuits set fire to plastic and rubber. Countless tiny explosions joined into a deafening chorus, further adding to the confusion. Little clouds of smoke rose up all over the office, quickly spreading into a haze that filled the room. Printers burst into flame as they ignited the paper inside them and those fires spread to the paperwork that littered the desks of the employees. Overhead sprinklers came on and doused the room in water, which added steam to the smoke and provided further concealment. The water also provided a new outlet for the current, and two vamps who had been standing too close to the computers were thrown back by the force of the electricity running through them. Brian kept an insulating barrier in place around himself, Fiona, and Callie, forbidding the current from touching them. The vamps fell back, wary of the fires that the sprinklers had yet to extinguish. Brian knew that the smoke and steam would confound their heat vision, and they would conserve their ammunition rather than risk emptying their clips into nothing. He squeezed Callie's hand and sent a telepathic signal to her and Fiona. Now! Brian rose to his feet and summoned a magnetic field then pushed in the direction of the vamps. A wave of invisible force flew across the room, blasting down cubicle walls and sending a barrage of office equipment down on the vampires. Moving as one, he, Fiona, and Callie turned and ran for the hallway that led to the emergency exit. Fiona paused at the entrance to the cross corridor, took careful aim, and threw the garlic bomb at one of the vamps who was already crawling free from the wreckage. Callie chucked hers wildly into the haze a moment later. The resulting howls and retching noises told Brian that both bombs had hit their marks. The fire had triggered Viscount's evacuation protocols, and the blast door was already unlocked when they reached it. Brian opened the door a few centimeters, and immediately Miriam's thoughts came rushing into his mind.
2: "'Brian!'
0: she said, both fright and relief evident in her telepathic voice."
2: My espers show four more vampires guarding that exit.
0: An image flashed in his mind, showing him the exact locations of the four gunmen. He passed the image along to Fiona and Callie. Too many to take before they hit us.
3: I have an idea.
0: If she was surprised by having the picture shoved into her mind, she didn't show it.
3: Stay close behind me and get ready to grab their guns with that magnet thing.
0: The runner took two deep breaths, then put her shoulder to the blast door and shoved it open. An instant later a magic field sprang up around her, enveloping all three of them in glowing pink light. The vamps in the staircase and the landing below opened fire, but tiny white motes of energy danced through the air and struck the incoming bullets, deflecting them safely away. The vamps hesitated, and in that instant Brian sent out his magnetic field, summoning their guns to his outstretched hands. Two of the vamps instinctively tried to hold on to their weapons and were carried into the air along with them, flying away from the landing and into the open air. He saw the look of horror in their eyes as he dispelled the field halfway before the guns reached him. They screamed as they fell into darkness. Fiona took advantage of Callie's shield by carefully lining up her shots against the two remaining vamps. Her bullets found eyes and kneecaps, blinding and disabling the undead soldiers. Before they could regenerate, she darted down the staircase and threw them bodily over the railing, sending them to join their comrades at the bottom of the 400-meter shaft. Brian shoved the blast door shut to slow down any pursuit from behind them, then followed Fiona and Callie down to the 4th level exit tunnel and out of the tower. Miriam had a getaway skimmer already waiting for them at the curb. They piled into the vehicle and raced off at breakneck speed, disappearing into the chaos of Metamore City traffic. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast, right after these messages.
2: This fall, are you ready for crime? Young Junius, the podcast novel, serialized every week at SethHarwood.com, brings you the story of Junius Pons. As a teenager growing up in a Boston that crack cocaine is just starting to take hold of, he's running to escape the consequences of a murder he had to commit and fighting to avenge the death of his brother. But first, he has to find out who did it. So let Seth Harwood, the author of Jack Wakes Up, take you on a trip through crime, action, and violence this fall as he brings young Junius to SethHarwood.com, your home for serialized crime. Hi there.
3: I'm Christiana Ellis, and in Christiana's Shallow Thoughts, I talk about weird stuff on the internet. No, not stuff that is both weird and on the internet, though I suppose it could be stuff on the internet. Maybe I should have phrased it, on the internet, I talk about weird stuff. Not a lot of it, just a few minutes every day, on whatever happens to cross my mind, like the sexual habits of snails. Shoe Repair, The Objective Nature of Reality, and Exploding Kittens. Christiana's Shallow Thoughts, available at shallowthoughts.libsyn.com or find all my stuff at www.christianaellis.com. New thoughts daily.
0: Hi, this is T. Morris of Podcasting for Dummies, the Moravi Saga, and the Batting's Mysteries. Restock your holy water, check your talismans, and keep it on the bright side. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. And now your host, Chris Lester. Thanks, T. We are back, ladies and gents. And by the way, if you haven't picked up your copy of the Case of the Pitcher's Pendant, you owe it to yourself to do so. T has woven together a great story of mobsters, magic, and Major League Baseball in 1930s Chicago. I recommend it to any fan of Metamore City. It's good stuff. Now then, let's get into some feedback. Our first message comes from the most recognizable voice in podcasting who does not yet have his own show. I speak, of course, of Doc Operon himself, St. Nickinuck of the Tundra, the internet's greatest champion of syphilis awareness, the one and only John Smart.
2: Once upon a time, Chris Lester tweeted at me, ...that he would pay cashy money to hear me squee. Squee! 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 Alright. First one's free, Lester.
0: The rest... no cost you. And that, as you might imagine, just made my week. (laughs) Thank you for indulging my whims, Doc. Next year at Balticon, the first round is on me. Next up is an email from Lance Schoenberg, who writes, Chris, I'll be upfront about this. I don't like urban fantasy. I never have, and typically I'll skip to the next story whenever I come across one in an anthology. It's hard to explain why exactly, but something about bringing fantastic elements into the modern world often irritates me. A couple of months ago I found myself with a lack of audio fiction, but an early interview – and I don't remember which one – on the Pippin' T double trouble circuit mentioned Metamore City, so I went out, found the website, and downloaded the first couple of episodes just on that recommendation. Well, I caught up just in time to not get trapped in the hiatus, although now I'm finding the wait a little long for the second half of Make-Believe, since I haven't had to wait two weeks in between episodes before now. I haven't changed my mind about urban fantasy in general, but I'm definitely enjoying Metamore City. It's good to have your horizons expanded once in a while. Well, thank you, Lance. I'm glad that I was able to show you a side of the genre that you enjoyed. Metamore City does seem to be able to draw people in from a lot of different backgrounds, and that's one of the things that I feel most proud of about it. Kilted Metalhead writes, Chris, I just recently found Metamore, and I must tell you that I am so glad I did. The Metamore universe reminds me of something between, and you're a fellow gamer, so I hope you get the references, Shadowrun and Palladium Rifts. I also can appreciate the subtle and not-so-subtle references to Star Wars. Being an avid and proud Star Wars geek, I picked up on them right away. The upper-level Skywalkers, the reference to Docking Bay 94 in an early episode of Making the Cut which any Star Wars geek worth their salt will tell you that that's the docking bay Han had told Ben and Luke to meet him in on Tatooine, and the multi-level city cast system that also appears on Coruscant. I don't know if you did any of these on purpose, but I appreciate them anyway. Well, yes, I must admit that all of those were indeed Star Wars references, when I had to pick a number for the docking bay, 94 was the obvious choice, just as Skywalker was an obvious bit of lingo to come up with for people who literally lived in the skies. Um, the idea for Metamorph City was birthed by some concept art for Coruscant that came out during those hopeful, promising years between Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire and Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Of all the times to grow up as a Star Wars fan, those may have been the finest. I pity the youngins whose formative experience with the series has been tainted by the prequels. But I digress. Anyway, thank you for writing in, Metalhead. Next up is Sean Nelson, who posted this message on the website. I've got to say that this is probably one of the best, if not the best, serialized patio books it has ever been my pleasure to listen to. I find myself hitting the refresh button in iTunes over and over, hoping to get the next episode as soon as it is posted. I'm more loyal to this story, this world you've created, than to any TV show yet produced. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening and telling my friends about the awesome world you've created. Well, thank you very much, Sean. That's definitely high praise, and I'm honored that Metamore City has such a prestigious place in your podcatcher. Thanks for all your help in spreading the word about the show. Now, if you would like to chime in, you can call our voicemail line at 206-350-7333, or you can email your comments, in text or audio, to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can also post your comments on the blog, or participate in the fan-led discussion forums, which are over at thecursed.org. If you want to help spread the word about the show, please post a review of Metamore City on iTunes. That helps to push us up in the ranking charts, and it increases the show's visibility, which helps more people to find it. Metamore City has fallen way behind Murder at Avedon Hill and Moravi on the charts, so I need your help to push us back up into the running and keep my nemesis on their toes. Just go to the website and click that big button that says Subscribe in iTunes on the right-hand side. It'll launch iTunes, and it'll bring you to the page where you can leave your review. That's all for this time, folks. I will talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Free Sound Project located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamorph City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.